Hello, I'm Pat Jordan, creative producer for the Kansas City Community Development Conference. The virtual conference is a series of video and audio interviews of community and civic leaders surrounding current topics of interest for those seeking information about community development and underserved areas of Kansas City's urban core. Today, we have with us Kansas City Council Member Melissa Robinson, who represents the 3rd Council District, Tammy Buckner of We Code KC, and a special guest, Mr. Bo Kemp, Chief Executive Officer of the Southland Development Authority in Chicago and a partner in the Fluent Group. Mr. Kemp is also a national expert in Opportunity Zone funding. We just wanted to take a moment, a few moments, to share some interesting knowledge about Opportunity Zone investments and other kinds of funding mechanisms and developments in the urban core. And I'm here today proudly with our esteemed councilwoman, Melissa Robinson, who is the councilwoman for the 3rd District in Kansas City. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Welcome. Mr. Bo Kemp, who is the chief executive officer of Southland Development Authority in Chicago and a partner in the Fluid Group. Welcome, Mr. Kemp. Thank you for having me. This has been amazing already, and we are just getting started. And of course, the esteemed Miss Tammy Buckner, who is the founder of We Code KC and is an Opportunity Zone consultant here in Kansas City. Thank you all for being with us Thank today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate we, it. And we just wanted to uh, have a, a conversation uh, amongst us and especially for you out there in, in Kansas City and beyond about the urban core and how is how it is that we can bring new information that will be of benefit to you. And I'm going to start off by uh, asking Bo to give us just a brief background about himself, and then we'll sure. hand it off to Councilwoman Robinson to ask the first couple of questions. Sure. Mr. Camp. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. I'm always excited to come to Kansas City. My son has asked me to bring uh, some barbecue back. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make that happen or not, but we're going to see. We will make it happen. We, yeah. we will make it happen. <laughs> Tammy Buckner makes all things happen. <laughs> all things happen. All things happen. <laughs> make it happen, woman. And I'm excited also because I've had a chance to work with you all before about what the opportunities are. My background really falls into three buckets. Um, so um, I have most recently been the CEO of the Southland Development Authority, which is an economic development organization that focuses on the 45 cities, towns, and villages that are in the south suburbs of Chicago. So everything that's south of Chicago all the way to Indiana is the purview where we work and operate. As part of being the CEO of the Southland Development Authority, I also run the Southland uh, Land Bank Development Association. So we also run the land bank for the, that area, which actually is, includes some cities that are in Will County, outside of Cook County, which is the county that Chicago resides in, and uh, some other counties within Illinois. And so we combine the work around the land bank and economic development together, which gives us some flexibility and opportunity to think differently about projects. I've been doing that for since 2021. Prior to that, I was the chair of the board of this organization which was actually only started in 2019. So we're only two years old. And one of the things I tell people is that, you know, we've had a lot of success in the midst of, pan of the pandemic, but partly it was because of our adaptability. We were launched like most economic development organizations, focused on bringing large scale businesses into the area for jobs. But as soon as the pandemic happened, we were launched in, in November of 2019. Basically everything shut down in March of 2020. We had to change our strategy up. 
And one of the things that we did, and it was a blessing in disguise, is it forced us, instead of thinking about all the people we need to bring from the outside in, we had to work with everybody who was already here. Mm. And we refocused our efforts. We worked with 500 businesses in 2020. All of them were existing businesses that were in our Southland to figure out how to keep them alive during this pandemic. And we actually were able to raise capital to make direct investments of hiring services that they need that they couldn't afford themselves for things as much as tax prep to figure out how to reconfigure their business to make them COVID friendly, to figure out how to make sure that they could do deliveries if they were restaurants, all those sorts of issues that they didn't have the money for directly, they didn't have access to. We were able to raise money from various philanthropic and government sources to pay for those services on behalf of those small businesses. And that's what we spent our time doing in 2020. Mm -hmm. But we really got an eye opener because it was like, wow, you know, you spend so much time thinking about who you need to bring in to hire everybody. Mm -hmm. We have a bunch of businesses here that A, we need to keep, and B, some of these businesses could really scale up and become important businesses. So we started to retool ourselves to focus around how do we identify those businesses that we should be investing more time and effort in to help them scale. And that's kind of how we've retooled ourselves over the course of the last year. And that's what we're focused. Last year, 2021, we were able to service 400 businesses. And we anticipate doing four to 500 businesses this year in 2022 with a similar sort of, of, of tact. Prior to this, I've had three basic careers. My first third of my career was on Wall Street. I worked for Morgan Stanley in mergers and acquisitions. And then I worked for a group called TSG Capital Group, which was the largest Black-owned private equity and venture capital group in the country. They had a billion dollars under management in 1993, which back then, billion dollars was still a lot of money. Um, The second third of my career was kind of a rehash of my time as a child and the work that you do at We Code KC, which is fantastic, kind of is aligned with this. I was an entrepreneur. So since I was a little kid, my first business that started when I was eight years old was a mail order catalog business. Um, that I still have a couple of those catalogs. Um, But I had had the chance to raise capital from seven Black-owned McDonald's franchise owners in Detroit, which is where I'm originally from, by the time I was in college. And then I had worked for General Motors' startup Saturn, which at the time was the largest startup in world's history. It's a $4 billion startup. I worked for them before they had a car, before they had a name. And so it was a small group. So I got to sit next to those C-suite people, So I got to see what it was to build an organization with $4 billion. And I built my little organization when I was eight years old for myself. So I kind of gone through that experience even before I graduated from college. I went back to Wall Street. But when I came back, when I started as an entrepreneur again, I then raised $100 million for businesses that I ran from media to biodiesel company to tutoring businesses. And so my third part of my career, I started working for governments Um, at the time. I had a business that was washed away with Katrina in 2005, and I had been introduced to someone who was running for mayor named Cory Booker. And uh, the guy who was my partner in in one of my companies went to Stanford with Cory and said, you should meet this guy. He's running for mayor. I worked with him in thinking about how do you turn around industrial cities like a Kansas City, Mm -hmm. like a Gary, like a, a Newark, like a Detroit. And then when he won, I came, I went into office with him and was what's called the city business administrator, which is like the city manager. All of the um, uh, employees of the city reported to me, and I, in turn, reported to the mayor. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I ended up getting into government work. I did that for two years. I kept going back to the private sector, and the public sector kept bringing me back. 
And so I've had a chance now to work with, you know, dozens of cities all around the country doing work that started with focusing on how do you cut cost in government to save them out of financial ruin. Mm -hmm. But what you learn very quickly, and I know, Councilwoman, you know this, you cannot cut your way to profitability. Mm -hmm. You have to grow. And the focus immediately switched from where do we save money to how do we grow? And so my activities over the last 15 years have really been economic development oriented because that's the only way to really deal with the issues that exist in a lot of the cities like Kansas City that had large populations that have been depleted. You can't just cut, keep cutting services. You have to actually grow business to get here. And all of that, and the fact that Cory Booker, now Senator Booker, was the co-sponsor of Opportunity Zones, brought me to Opportunity yeah, Zones. I see. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing, amazing career. And uh, you are a dynamo. There's absolutely no question <laughs> about that. The last time you were here, you talked in depth about Opportunity Zone funding. Yeah. Councilwoman, do you want to pose a couple of questions around that sure. issue as a, as a, as a catch-up to talk about where we are now? Well, I have so many questions, and I hope that you are a fan of the curveball because <laughs> there are a lot of things that you have talked about that we think we need to spend some time delving into. And if people aren't really tuned in and connected cemented to this conversation right now. This is, you're a expert that I'm sure that your portfolio is innumerable <laughs> as it relates to what you're doing around business growth, about real estate investments and all of those things. And so I just want people that are listening to know the the jewel that we have and the uh, fortune of, of having this conversation with you on today. So the first question is really about you know, we say OZ, so what do you say? Like, how how has Opportunity Zone funding, how has it changed um, since you were here uh, mm -hmm. last in 2020? Yeah, so I was here prior to the pandemic, yep. so that was a big change, obviously. Yeah. You know, Opportunity Zones, even then, were really about getting people to change their frame of reference mm -hmm. of the kind of opportunity and risk that exists in any marketplace. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the problem is, is that we are all creatures of habit. And if the habit for the investor class is to always bypass certain neighborhoods, well, then that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity that Opportunity Zones really presented was to refocus people's thought around places that had gone through decades of disinvestment, not just one to two years. And so I always was a proponent of Opportunity Zones because having worked in multiple cities around the country, I know that so much of what's happening is people have a habit of overlooking certain blocks, certain mm -hmm. neighborhoods, certain Absolutely. cities, not because they're not good investments, mm -hmm. not because there aren't opportunities, but simply because that's what everybody else Great did. And they don't want to take the risk to be the first one to step out there. So what Opportunity Zones presented was a chance to at least get people to rethink what their thought pattern had been previously. Mm -hmm. Some people were able to take effective advantage of that. Others weren't. Mm -hmm. But there's a second problem, which is there's a technical aspect of Opportunity Zones. And so the last yeah. time I was here, we spent a lot of time talking about technically how do you take advantage of this and what are the benefits? The, 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 the ancillary problem to that technical benefit was that there wasn't an ecosystem of service providers to help you do it. So right. in 2020, or really the beginning of 2020, um, the end of 2019, 
there were people that were taking advantage of opportunity zones, but they were still kind of out in the forest on their own, right? Because every law firm had not done this. Every accounting firm had not done mm-hmm. this yet. Mm-hmm. So they were all kind of blazing new territory, figuring out what to do. Quiet as it's kept, there's a lot of opportunity zone investments that have done everywhere in the country, including Kansas City, even though you're not aware of it. Well, but when you think about the um, African-American access to opportunity zones and you layer on the pandemic and the whole, you know, um, you know, access to federal funding to keep things, you know, afloat and that type of thing. We're always at the back of that line, especially so if people are innovating in that space, that costs a lot of money to be able to access those service providers Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. And so where do African-Americans, African-American investors, developers, entrepreneurs, how have they been included in the Opportunity Zone landscape? So like with almost everything we've experienced, right? often uh, black folks are not in the beginning of that line, right? Yeah. right? And the only way for us to get kind of a share is we actually have to be much better and be much more aggressive than our peers in order to get access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's difficult and sometimes it's risky to do, especially in an environment like Opportunity Zones where much of the legislation had not been finalized mm-hmm. or the regulatory guidelines. So it took a lot of risk. And typically what you need for a program like this, and this is true for EB-5, this is true for things like hub zones, you need other people to blaze the trail so that Mm -hmm. the accountants and the lawyers, they know how to do this and keep you out of trouble. Absolutely. And so one of the things you talked about was the purpose of this was to not look over the disinvested areas and not continue to habitually create these red lines that that have historically played urban centers in America. But is that enough? Is opportunity zones in and of themselves, is it enough? What type of other incentives are necessary to build on that to really make the deal attractive? Yeah, no. So great question. And no, it's not enough in and of itself. And part of the problem is that we are trapped with a government that is, so government by its definition, as you know, Councilwoman, is all about compromise, Mm -hmm. right? You never get exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. But we're now at a place where we are having to compromise at the federal level in ways that sometimes make a program not as functional as it could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way to get some investment dollars targeting these disadvantaged markets was to make it market-based, right? So in a perfect world, I think, frankly, the Republican, the Democratic legislature would have probably said, hey, we want to mandate that there's investments that go into these places that have suffered from disinvestment, and we want to target it specifically. But in order to get enough votes at the federal level to make that happen, you had to to make it market-based, and that was the compromise. Mm -hmm. So whenever you make something market-based, it moves into a different realm because now you're not mandating anything. You are having to convince people that already have money that it's in their best interest to take this action. And they're always going to take, frankly, just as you and I would, Mm -hmm. the quickest and easiest way out. They're not looking to say, you know, I want to go to the hardest place to do this and no one's ever proven that this has happened effectively. No, they're going to take the easiest route. So they went immediately to those markets that were already gentrified. They went to programs and projects that were already funded. They took all the easy routes first because their first and foremost focus was, I actually make a lot of money, so I pay a lot of taxes. 
Mm -hmm. I want to reduce my tax liability. They were not thinking about the spirit of the law, which was, hey, I want to invest in places that have not been invested. Not that they didn't care about that, because I don't want to make it seem like just because you're wealthy that you never have a thought mm -hmm. about other people. But their primary focus was, I have a large tax bill. Mm -hmm. And if I could reduce my tax bill by 50%, I'm, I'm all in. Now, that meant that the types of projects that needed to be presented Mm -hmm. were ones that felt very safe to them, mm -hmm. that they weren't risking any principal, mm -hmm. and felt like, oh, these are deals that are going to happen. It yep. made it easy for them. Most of the areas where we need the biggest investment mm -hmm. don't meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. There are places that need a lot of work. There are places that need a lot of development in advance. What most cities didn't do effectively, and this is what we talked about when I was here last, is you have to put a lot of pre-development work in. Mm -hmm. And that means that the mayors and city councils and all those legislative groups have to say, I'm going to use what, what public dollars I have to prep the areas that I know need the most help to present them in a way mm -hmm. that say, hey, this is where you should be making an investment. At some point, I'm happy to talk a little bit about where we've had a chance to do that, like in New Orleans and Tampa. But not every market did that. Some markets did. Many markets didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so, you know, critically important to, like you said, look at that, you know, what is the public responsibility to that private investment and creating a P3 that really makes sense to the investor. Now, the challenge becomes like when you talk about land bank, for example, which I definitely want to delve into that conversation, <laughs> but doing simple things like clearing titles and doing land assemblage and utilizing your EDC in a way that they're doing some of that pre-development work so it's easier to kind of hand that off over to the investor. One last question regarding OZ. And That's then a we're key gonna... point, by the way, that shouldn't be overlooked because that is site aggregation is of all of the risk that investors cannot take is one of those risks that many of them refuse to take particularly in disadvantaged markets, because many of the most disadvantaged markets, what they actually have is they have a, a, a number of investors. So on this block, mm -hmm. there are probably 12 different people who own land on this block. So if I wanted to redevelop the whole block, I got to negotiate with each of those 12 mm -hmm. different people. And if any one of them is unreasonable, it kills a deal. Yeah. Right. And you have a lot of people that have for decades been basically vultures. Mm -hmm. And they've been vultures in black and Hispanic markets predominantly right. where they've bought land for no money, don't right. maintain that land, right. and have been waiting for yeah, the moment that it. somebody yeah. is going right. to come and offer them a lot of money. Yeah. Well, that pre prevents you as a public official from actually putting together a cohesive plan. And that cohesive plan is the key to convince somebody that already has money that maybe I should make this investment. Mm -hmm. So those two things actually go together. So yeah. one of the things that people who've been really successful in this space have done is they've gone after what I call deadbeat landlords. Yeah. People who mm -hmm. basically bought land off and mm -hmm. on tax sale, yeah. don't take care of their land. People are squatting on it. People are dumping yeah. on it. Mm -hmm. and, and they just leave it. They go after those people and take the land from it. Prevent yeah. them from even loaning land on a going forward basis in the entire area when they show a pattern of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it ties directly to where you can actually get development done. Yeah. Because until you actually can do site aggregation, you can't do development. And I apologize, Council. No, no, that's question. perfect. And it gave me an opportunity to shout out to Likens Neighborhood Association, who <laughs> has done a great job in utilizing some of those levers, finding those um, 
little fault lines in state law and state statute around how to get properties back from, you know, absentee landlords and properties that are not contributing to the the viability and vitality of the, the neighborhood. In Missouri, there is a lot of protections. Yes. There are a lot of protections for landowners. And so it does start, I think, um, especially when we have so many vacant lots. I mean... So many many that are in the land bank that are on our homesteading authority uh, list. And, you know, we have an opportunity to protect that from the beginning instead of allowing these speculative people to come and grab those. And so can I jump in on that point, if you don't mind? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I will tell you when I work with cities, the very first fundamental block of actual economic development is code enforcement. And many That's what cities, I was going to talk about as well. Yeah, they struggle with this because you know when they start thinking about you know where they can kind of slack off in investment, mm-hmm. it's often in the code enforcement because just the act of code enforcement can kind of be frustrating in many cases for a lot of the businesses. That and it needs to be different from the grandma on the stove than the yeah. you know like come on. And then. so there is a there is an area in St. Louis where they have softened that code enforcement, if you will, by also providing the inspectors with the ability to act as a go-between between the owner of the property and wraparound services. So they will actually match them with, they, they're on the ground and they're given a particular area, mm-hmm. and then they, they get to know the neighborhood, which is so important. They yeah. get to know the residents. And if Miss Jordan needs a new roof, but she can't afford it, they will help her Find mm-hmm. that money, that money. Well, working in, with the city. And in Kansas City, we have like the Tele Two Cities. And so in the Northland, we pay a neighborhood collaborative mm-hmm. to employ people like these, you know, really they're like neighborhood ambassadors mm-hmm. and they go and do the very thing that you're saying. But then in the the south of the river, in the more disinvested areas, it's not the same. You don't mm-hmm. have that type of, for people who have lived in their home for um, generations, right. people who, like you said, can't infor- uh, afford it. There needs to be a separate or a more stratified solution for your absentee landlords than, you know, the grandmother who's Absolutely. just trying to, you know, make things. And, and if I could add to that, because that's such a good point, Councilwoman. You know, one of the things I learned, because as I described my background, was not government initially. And I never intended to work in the government because you are taught when you are in business schools and all that kind of stuff that, you know, all these problems with government. But, you know, complaining about government is a luxury that is afforded to those people who have means. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you don't have means, as you know, Mm-hmm. and a tree falls on your house, you don't call your insurance company and right. you don't call a person to cut the tree up and get it out. You call your councilwoman. Mm-hmm. You call City Hall, mm-hmm. you know, because that is the last resource often mm-hmm. for people for that people. don't have yeah. the, the, the wherewithal to pay for those things themselves. Mm-hmm. And so just like you described that in the North, you're able to actually create essentially a non-public entity mm-hmm. that serves as code enforcement. And what that does is it's the foundational pillar of economic development. So now that I've got that code enforcement information, my ability to work more closely with the owners of land is different because somebody's been checking on them and talking to them and Mm -hmm. keeping in contact with them. Now it's easier for me to aggregate the land. So when I want to do a deal, 
right? It's easier for me to do that deal. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, they may not tell you, but if you were to call accountants here, KPMG or any other law uh, accounting firm or lawyers, they will tell you privately, lots of deals have happened probably in the mm -hmm. North that are opportunities, mm -hmm. lots of deals. Mm -hmm. yeah. They won't tell you who That's because right. they need their client to approve okay. disclosure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those deals are happening mm -hmm. without question. They just won't share it with you. But it gets to the heart of an issue that you spoke about. Well, and the last question I have, and I know that Miss um, Buckner has questions too, but are there, is there any other substance on the plate, if you will, as it relates to opportunity zones, especially last time when you were here, we talked about pivoting and we talked about the entrepreneur being able to utilize this tool to help them to grow. Um, what's left with opportunity zones that, you know, the, you know, small business, the disadvantaged business can latch on to, mm -hmm. to see some success with their biz their business. So there is an opportunity. It's been harder and, and COVID didn't help because for the smaller investor to take advantage of this requires that there's a lot of money that's available for them to glom onto. Mm -hmm. You know, if they had had that relationship with funding to begin with, they wouldn't be worried about opportunities. opportunities right. right? Mm -hmm. So what 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 the expectation was was that with all this new money coming in, the Opportunity Zone investor was going to have to branch out to smaller and different investors. Mm -hmm. What happened with COVID is everyone kind of reduced their investment profile. Investors were able to still cherry pick and only do certain types of projects. Mm -hmm. They never had to actually start to go to smaller and smaller projects or to newer and newer partners. They maintained with those larger partners because those were the people that they had the relationships with on the phone. They could talk to via video. They didn't have to go out and see the project. They kind of already knew the person. They knew the partners they were working with. So we kind of got hampered over the course of the last couple of years of migrating those investments to smaller and newer investments. Now, some cities took it upon themselves to be really proactive. Mm -hmm. You know, I've worked with both the city of New Orleans and the New Orleans region, as well as the city of Tampa, mm -hmm. um, where they've created prospectuses that are actually marketing within specific markets. So they've yeah. chosen, there's like in Tampa, they've 17 different opportunity zones, but they chose the five most disadvantaged opportunity mm -hmm. zones and they went and marked by GIS yeah. system. Mm -hmm. Here's where you could buy a house. Here's where you yeah, could I'm buy a, 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 a commercial property. Here's where you could buy an industrial property. And here are the for uh, the for-profit investments that are happening in the area that you could also invest in. Here are the public investments the city is already or the county or the state is already promoting. And we put it together into a 170-page book um, that we've made available. It's integrated into the Tampa uh, Economic Development website. So if you go to tampa.gov right now and you go to Opportunity Zones, you'll be able to see the market information. It tells you what vacancy, what the pricing would be in each of these markets. And it's specific, not to all Opportunity Zones, but the ones that the mayor, Mayor Castro, has specifically targeted. Right? Well, you know, I, you know, those who are listening right now, please call our city manager. Mm -hmm. That is on the third district list to develop a perspective perspectives so that again that you take out a lot of the legwork and a lot of the guesswork that people have to do and you make it inviting um, for people to come in so no I mean I, I think you covered a lot of things that I wanted to talk about especially when it comes to entrepreneurs and small developers and how they can be a part of this but my question would be how do you ignite how do you reignite that in Kansas City and who owns that yeah. Because that's where the struggle is right now. 
who's going to own all of this? And how do we reignite that in Kansas City? Because So I will say this, and I'm not making a political statement because I don't know or have an affiliation with the mayor's office or anybody. I can do that for you. You can do that. <laughs> but I will say this, that what I have seen is reigniting and focusing is very leadership dependent. Okay. You know, if in the case of, you know, um, Tampa, the mayor was not focused on those areas mm-hmm. and the city council was not on board with those areas, okay. then that would not have been a focus. Okay. It would have been just as easy for them not to do this at all. Um, same is true in New Orleans. Same is true in Cook County. If Tony Preckwinkle, who's the president of Cook County, wasn't focused on making sure that we were specifically targeting businesses of color and businesses that are in some of these disadvantaged areas, Mm -hmm. we would do some of that work, but we wouldn't be focused in the same way. And so it's important that leadership says that this is an important priority for me and my city, and therefore we're going to focus our efforts. Yeah. We know that people are developing in Kansas City, yeah. right? And when they come, all you really need to be able to say to them is, listen, I know you've already decided that you want to do this project downtown, but I want to show you these three other neighborhoods mm-hmm. that maybe you didn't consider. And mm-hmm. let me show them in the best light to give you a sense that there's another opportunity that maybe you've overlooked. Maybe your calculus around the risk of being in certain markets is wrong. And let me show you why I think it's wrong. Because, mm-hmm. hey, this is our focus. This is where we're putting public investment behind. Mm-hmm. Here are projects that are already happening underway. And you can actually be the one to break this market open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those folks who might say to themselves, you know what? I'm doing a great project. I know I'm about to make a lot of money in this downtown project. You know what? I, I could participate in one or two of these things that yeah. are over here that I didn't think about. Right? And it really takes leadership to kind of put yourself out there and say, this is important, right? And I need to make this happen. Okay. And I'm going to put my best foot forward to try. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you know a city could be too, as my grandmother would say, you're a little bit too big for your britches? You know, we have 318 <laughs> square miles a with city. a lot of priorities, and it's very difficult. You know, as much as we're advocating for, you know, all of the things and the 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 visual that the third district represents as it relates to the lack of viability and the lack of vibrancy is extremely strong. Like if you drive through the third district, you feel it in your bones, mm-hmm. the, the, that gnawing to just do something to help yeah. the individuals that live there. Uh, but I think that it is a challenge because we ha- we're such a big city geographically and it's hard to maintain all of the lane miles that we have with the street resurfacing. And we're under two yeah. unfunded, mandated consent decrees yep. um, with our water and water our and police, and, and water and uh, ADA compliance, our okay. sidewalks. sidewalks. And so, you know, those are your infrastructure, uh, 318 square miles. So there's a lot going on. Uh, but let me, if I can, and I know you have some more questions, but I got to get this in real quick. Um, you talked about the your ability to um, address the businesses um, where you are now. And um, how, what would you say to our small business community in terms of effective tools to advocate for city resources? We have $500,000, billion budget. Mm-hmm. We approve $500,000 to mm-hmm. uh, support our small businesses. Yeah. 
They asked for $11 million. Um, And so what would you say to them to get the attention of the city government to help to invest? You know, that's a great question. I mean, I'll ask the question back and say, you guys just experienced the pandemic like everybody else, Mm -hmm. right? What happened to those small businesses in the last two years? You know, I mean, here's what I, if, if, if I were a council member or I were mayor, the thing that we all know is sometimes it's that corner store that really is a pillar in your neighborhood. And you may not have recognized it because maybe it looked beat up from the outside mm-hmm. and you go in and it's tight mm-hmm. aisles and chips. But that's where everybody went to go buy pop mm-hmm. and snacks. Right. And if that thing shuts down, it affects Everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think many cases it's easy to overlook some of the small businesses and the role that they play in making yeah. a neighborhood a neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just ask the question in the reverse, which is, you know, you know, there are about eight different types of businesses that have to. Ex- we, we did this analysis for work that I had done once in another city. How do you redevelop an area and mm-hmm. what are the businesses that have to be there? for people to feel like this is a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And some of them are obvious. You know, you need a place to buy food. It doesn't always have to be a grocery store, but I got to be able to buy fresh food. Food, I need to be able to get my pharmacy drugs, right? I need to actually be able to buy a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to buy a drink. I need to be able to buy a place where I can sit down and eat, right? There are just a, there's seven or eight Mm -hmm. different things that you need to have for a neighborhood to feel like a neighborhood. And most of these neighborhoods, I'm sure in Kansas City, like anywhere else, those are small businesses that are doing. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, perhaps we need to find some civic leaders who would step up to the plate and become ambassadors mm-hmm. uh, who are of the opinion and believe in what, what we call, of course, the donut hole theory, that if you do not fix the, the center of the city, your problems will only grow and spread yeah. and will eventually be in your neighborhood or yeah. at your neighborhood's Absolutely. back door. Um, and so what about that? What about trying to reach out to some civic leaders uh, and and forming some sort of coalition? With, uh, I think it's critical. And, and what most of us now see is if you try to take action without input from the public, they're going to come with pitchforks after you, right? And input can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't mean, I mean, listen, lots of times people don't know what they need. Right, none of us needed an iPod in 1990. You know, six. six. None of us were looking for an iPod, but once you had one, you were like, "Ooh, this is Can't what I live need." Without it, right? And sometimes you have to show people what they need. Sometimes when you talk to the general public, you have to give them what are their viable options because everything that they want is not viable. But in order for you to make real change, the public has to be engaged. And if you're trying to make those investments and those changes and you've not even made an attempt to engage the public, they're going to come back for you. It's going to backfire on you. And there are different publics. There are different segments of our community. There are lots of stakeholders, right? maybe. Yeah, the way lots to of say stakeholders. Thank and, you. and each of those stakeholders have a different requirement. But, you know, interestingly enough, and this applies for Opportunity Zones, but ARPA money and other things, the American Rescue Plan oh, Act, you yeah. know, you, in order to get investors to want to take a risk, what they want to be insulated from is personal backlash. They don't want to be accused of doing anything wrong. As crazy as it may sound, no matter how rich they are, mm-hmm. they don't want to have people talk about them in the newspaper and call them evil. Okay. That's part of the reason why you don't hear about opportunities on investments. Because rich people don't want 
everybody else to know that they're making these investments to save themselves in tax dollars. Because they figure, well, I'm already rich, so nobody wants to hear about me making more money as a rich person. So I'd rather people not know that this is happening. Well, but you have to talk about, this came from NLC, the National League of the Cities, and uh, President uh, President Biden, uh, he uh, addressed the crowd and talked about you know, making sure that there's this fair share growth because we, yes, every city needs to grow. And to your point, and small businesses and the city of Kansas City, uniquely, we have an earnings tax. So if you work in Kansas City, if you live in Kansas City, 1% of your earnings goes Mm -hmm. uh, back in addition to sales tax and other revenue streams. Well, because of the pandemic, your large corporations, what are they doing? They're working from home. That's right. So you lose that earnings tax, but who's there to pay it? All the the local small businesses. businesses. Local businesses and so just, can't be moved. Right. Trying to, you know, figure those things out. But I I wondered about your your thoughts around fair share growth and about like how do you make sure that you're putting those guardrails in place so that as because the issue with in Kansas City with the newspaper is, you know, these TIFs mm-hmm. and you're taking money from, you know, children in these school districts that are predominantly black and brown. And but we, you know, want to send that message that yes, we want economic development, right. but we don't want to develop in a way that takes away resources. So this is a really important point. And you know, the answer is not happy for anybody because mm-hmm. it isn't what people want, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we live in a world where it is very difficult. Money is fungible, meaning it can be spent anywhere. Mm-hmm. So all the people who have money, they're not just making a decision about, do I want to invest in Kansas City? They're making a decision, do I want to put this here? Do I want to put it in Oakland? Do I want to put it in Shanghai? Mm-hmm. They can put their money anywhere. So we are competing to bring that money. Mm-hmm. And that competition necessitates yeah. certain types of incentives. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that all those incentives have to be TIF dollars, right? But can you not do TIF dollars? No. If you don't, if you if your goal is to not do any TIF dollars, you just won't get investment because the people who have the money they can choose anywhere in the world to be. But you go to these extremes, right? And so that's the challenge. No, no, it's- I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just making the first point, which is. A lot of people's attitude is, well, I'm just not going to do any TIF. Mm-hmm. But the but for analysis, like how much, one, how much profit margin do oh. you want to make? And then will this be financially successful for you if the TIF is not, like to the what extent? Maybe it's 11 years versus 25 no, years. No, I get it. But here's the problem. No one wants to be an investment but for. So if I couldn't do this investment but for your TIF, mm-hmm. that ain't a good investment. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing are, that to be nice. I'm not doing that to make money because if it were, but because there are other places I could be where I don't have to think, but for getting this money, this deal works. And and the problem, but for is now you've said I have no margin for error, error because but for the money you've given me, I won't make any money unless you're investing in a disinvested census tract, right? So an historically disinvested census tract because it's. Okay, we we recognize that you don't necessarily need a but for analysis because of the deep investments. But if you're going to go and build in our downtown area and we need to know that this incentive is actually needed 
because we're taking away resources right. for mental health and no, education. No, the, the, the resources issue is real. And you know what's interesting? I'd say there's kind of two but-fors. Okay. If I'm getting money and but for that money, this deal doesn't work, mm -hmm. that's one analysis. But in some cases, but for you giving me money, I wouldn't even consider being in this area. Mm. And so you're trying to migrate people from one space to the next. Mm -hmm. And they've had 30, 40, 50 years of not investing in a certain area. So they're perfectly fine overpassing that area altogether, not even looking at it altogether. Mm -hmm. So but for the incentives you're offering me, I wouldn't be considering an opportunity. Well, let me stay here. And then I have one last question because I know. But let me just say with this this whole um, incentives and uh, tax abatements, the biggest qualm that I have is where is the leadership? Where is the vision? What are the problems that we're trying to solve through development yeah. that have to come through government? And so I am marketing myself that solves cities' problems versus waiting for someone to come and tell me I'm cute. Yeah. I don't I don't need that, yeah, right? And I so I my biggest issue is that we can incent things, but how are those those projects helping us to solve our priorities and our problems? I think you I think your focus is right. And and my comment about the but for isn't to say that you shouldn't go down the path that you're describing. It's to say that's the perspective of the investor. Yes. So the question mm -hmm. is, how do I get that person to think differently? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm doing a project right now for the Southland Development Authority in Harvey, Illinois. And Harvey, Illinois is very similar in a lot of respects to probably the third district here. Industrial area, substantially minority, you know, a place that has depleted its population but has a ton of assets, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was a manufacturing center and mm. where a lot of people live that did that work. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time when people go to a place like that, they try to buy the land for nothing or for a dollar. Mm -hmm. And we made a financial decision that we were going to approach the city and not ask them to donate the land and not ask for a dollar, but we're going to pay them dollar amount. It's not a lot of money, $5,000 for 10 properties, but we're going to pay them. Because we don't want to set a standard that the value of this land is zero. We want to set a standard that there is value in this land. That's why we're paying for Can it. Can you say that one more time? Because <laughs> people need to hear that sentence. Well, but I, so I do believe that in these markets, the value of the land is not zero. There is value in this land. 18th and Vine. It's not zero. Mm, no, no, Absolutely. No, no okay. question about mm, it. Okay. No question about and, it. And I'm willing. Now, I run a not-for-profit, right? And so I have an ulterior motive that's bigger than, than just making money. But I don't want to continue to promote the idea that land should be given away for free. Now, there are reasons that you might want to give <laughs> land away for free, right? There are reasons. But it should be, they should come with other things attached to them. Right, right? community benefits. Yes, right. community <laughs> benefits is definitely one of them. And I was, I was going to suggest that as well as each real estate deal is different. So you have to be able to have, a, I think, a governing body that's willing to understand that and be flexible. It's really hard to deal with an inflexible government mm -hmm. system, which is what we mostly have now. So one of the things I'm advocating for is a $50 million development fund mm. that would be that would uh, be set up by the, the private sector mm. in Kansas City. Which would mean, which could be extremely flexible, could add to the incentives that are already on the table, mm -hmm. and um, 
uh, would not have some of the constraints that right. that's, that comes along with uh, that come along with government dollars. I mean, so I love the idea if you can make it happen. The difficulty, of course, is it's a challenge. Well, because yeah. money is fungible, I can invest anywhere. I'm looking at you in the third district versus Shanghai. If I could put fifty million dollars anywhere, where would I put it? Well, and I and that's what I'm saying. We need to mine M I N E for. Mm-hmm. Um, de- uh, development companies and uh, funders with a heart. So I think you actually have an argument because I actually think that the answer to that question is, hey, we are as competitive as Shanghai, mm-hmm. but I just need to show you how we're competitive. And part of it is that you have to invest the time and effort so that you are showing them the aspects in which they are missing an opportunity. And not everybody's going to believe, yeah. but once you get one believer, right? Others will start to come. And that's where the leadership and the focus is important. That's why things like a prospectus can matter. Mm -hmm. Even though that prospectus isn't going to turn the tide in of itself, Mm -hmm. you basically are looking for catalysts. Mm -hmm. You're looking for one or two people who serve as a catalyst to demonstrate that the investment that they've made was not nearly as risky as it was projected originally. And once that happens, you know, investors are lemmings more than they are leaders. And that's not me trying to be pejorative to them. It's just a reality. They don't want to establish a new market. They want to follow things that have been proven because they're trying to reduce their risk. Mm-hmm. So you've got to create a reason for someone to take an initial risk mm-hmm. and get a benefit for doing so. I think we could do that. I think we've I think got enough can. projects going on in Kansas City. Well, let me say in the third district right now, mm-hmm. thanks to Councilwoman Robinson and her advocacy, that we can begin to take some of these projects that are coming out of the ground right now and use them as examples. Yeah, and I think that there are certainly, Kansas City is a very philanthropic city, and I believe that there might not be individuals that are looking for a specific uh, monetary ROI, but they are really committed to making a change and making a difference and giving people the straps so that they can pull their boots up. And I think to your point, Return isn't always monetary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think there's a lot of people, and frankly, a lot of the folks who have made money here have a lot to protect in making sure that Kansas City continues to grow. Right. And so there's good reason for them to maybe want to do that $50 million fund. And it's about positioning and helping them understand your donut hole theory and why that center is so connected to not just the city, the county, but mm-hmm. even Everything. the outskirts, yeah. right? Yeah. All of these things work absolutely together. work together, whether you want them to or not. Yeah. So let's shift the conversation uh, because I think that people are really wanting to hear about other tools, especially in the governmental space, that could help them really build a foundation for growth for their business. And so what are some other funding mechanisms? What's the new frontier mm-hmm. as it relates to these public-private partnerships? You know, ARPA, the American Rescue Plan in particular, is really a significant impact on municipalities. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, it's like a lot of things. If I give you a little bit of something, it can help. But if I give you a lot of something, sometimes it causes a different issue. A lot of municipalities right now are now trying to figure out how to equitably and effectively distribute the monies that they've been provided as a result of the American Rescue Plan. And that's not an easy thing for them to do. The plan itself does not inhibit a municipality from actually making direct investments in any individual industry or company. 
And so they can actually be directly involved in real estate projects if those projects they think have a bigger you know, opportunity to lead. And when you're talking about that $50 million fund, that funding is designed specifically to promote economic development, of which that $50 million real estate fund that you described could easily be part of the city or the, the, the county's oh, really? ARPA plan. Mm-hmm. You have to convince all of the powers to be that that's an appropriate way for them to invest that money. Mm-hmm. And you need to also show them that you have both the means of putting that money to work because making sure that that money is invested and done so in a way that's verifiable and trackable is a really important aspect of this. Okay. But if you can, there is absolutely funding available. And I would say it's available at the state level as well. Right. So where I in your position, Councilwoman, and in your position running the not-for-profits that you both do, there is a chance to present to the city, the county, and the state an opportunity for them to make some strategic investments in areas that are definitively about equity, mm-hmm. right? And making sure that you're investing specifically in certain types of businesses. Um, and I think that that's where I would go. I will tell you, um, basically because I have no shame, I before <laughs> the ARPA money came out, I asked our county president publicly for $50 million, which was kind of crazy, um, admittedly. And she's fantastic. Pat doesn't think so. I don't think so at all. At all. In fact, my my real number for the urban core is $500 million. Well, you know, know, given the assets, I mean, so here's another way to think about what you just said. So if you were to account for all of the assets that exist in this urban core, the rails, the water, the, the roads, all the things that have already been invested, mm-hmm. right, over time, the billions of dollars that are here, $500 million to support those assets is nothing, right? So it's not an unreasonable number. It feels unreasonable because that kind of money hasn't been invested. Right. But if you just think about what the replacement cost would be, use your airport, right? So you're building an airport across the street from the old airport. I don't know any of the particulars, but we just drove past mm-hmm. it. But I've actually worked on building airports, among other things, before. So <laughs> I told you they're innumerable. <laughs> Run, one runway, just to redo the runway, is almost $200 million. Right. So that's a couple billion dollar airport, right? Well, okay. So that's the replacement value of your existing airport, right? So if someone said to you, well, I've got airports and I got rail and I got roads and I got this... If I'm going to spend $500 million to support that, that doesn't sound nuts at all. That sounds completely reasonable, Mm -hmm. right? So I think you have to frame the conversation a little differently. Mm -hmm. But the next step is you have to show people, all right, if I invest at $500 million, these are the things that I can do Mm -hmm. that actually support that existing asset. Mm -hmm. So when I asked for my $50 million, I gave 15 different plans of how that $50 million would be spent. Some of them were operating Budgets, some of them were capital plans, but I had 15 different plans of when you total it up, got to the 50. Now they put in 30 million for me, and of that 30, you know, they've already assigned me give or take about three, but I'm gonna ride them out for the next three years to get as much of that as I can. And I just use it as an example of how I would recommend for you all, given Mm -hmm. what you do in not for profits and at the uh, legislative level, and for small businesses. That presenting yourself, you have to have a vision and be clear about what you want. Yeah. So you have to know what you want. And that's harder to do sometimes than it sounds. Yeah. 
And having that clarity, though, puts people in a position where they got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't equivocate. You said, I want $50 million for this real estate fund. And by the way, $50 million on top of the, you know, I don't know, 80 billion of assets that already exist here, that's nothing. That's a reasonable investment. Okay. Right? Yeah. So I would just say for a lot of small businesses, that kind of clarity is important. But in order to have it, you really do need some leadership to help yeah. um, people kind of clarify. Because mm-hmm. most small businesses, you know, what they need, and you mentioned two things that are relevant. So water, I, if my streets are flooded and I people can't, and ADA compliant, yeah. that's a problem. Parking, that's always a problem because I need turnover, people to be able to get in and out of my store. You know, my roads, right? Those are always a problem. Those are things that actually a lot of these small businesses will tangibly tell you that they need right. because it impacts people getting in and out of their store. Yep. Um, but it isn't the sort of thing that would probably come top of mind if you ask them. Lots of times people are doing like facade programs and things of that nature. Yeah, everybody wants the space to look a bit better, but that's not driving their profit margin by and large. What every small business today will tell you that they need are people, right? And figuring out how they get access to people People. is the number one issue for every single business. And I will just say this as a warning. I walked into the Walmart that I used to go to that was in Indiana before the pandemic and you get in line and a bunch of people are in line. Mm-hmm. I came back after the pandemic and you self-shot <laughs> everything, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Don't right. touch me. I won't touch you. <laughs> right. Many of these mm-hmm. businesses are taking this as an opportunity to squeeze all their labor costs mm-hmm. out of the business. Yeah. Yeah. And they're never going to go back to the long lines again, yeah. right? They're just going to squeeze all that labor cost out, mm-hmm. you know? And people kind of think, well, if those people no longer have a job, they should just all be ready to work at other places. But that's not yeah, the way any system works, goes. right? That's just not the way it works. Yeah. A lot of these people now are dislocated and not in the job market any longer. And figuring out how to get those people who've lost their job back into something that they can yeah. functionally do, that's the number one issue for small businesses mm-hmm. right now. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about this ARPA money because I feel like we are going to be judged for our deeds. Absolutely. And there are going to be good things that cities will say – we were effective, we were strategic in getting these dollars out, but there's going to be some some straight up, you know, yep. horror stories. So what Brookings Institute, they put out something that talked about some effective uses of, of ARPA, but what is the good, the bad, the ugly um, in terms That's of- That's a great question. I, so we're already seeing right now, it's impossible to put $2 trillion out and not mm-hmm. find somebody who stole some money. And so what we're going to see for the next six to 12 wait, months. Wait, 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 hold on. He <laughs> said uh, orange jumpsuits? Yeah. Okay. Right? Some, I mean, some misuse. And, and so what misuse. we're seeing now is we're going to see a whole bevy of stories between now and the election about people who've misappropriated funds. Yeah. Now, but if you put that into the context of the amount of money that was actually put out, I mean, stealing any money is bad, but the amount of money we're talking about relative to the money that was invested was not a lot. Right. But the key that I would be worried about if I were in your position, Councilwoman, is we'll call it the last mile problem. Okay, so the city or the county has gotten the money. You may have divided it up into buckets of how you want to spend the money, mm-hmm. but you need to actually have someone kind of intercede and be the, the, the bridge between mm. the city has the money to the small business, right? And that actually is the fundamental problem. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Most economic development corporations are not set up no. to actually be that bridge. No. They, they, they actually only are reactive to people who call them and ask for something. And most of the time, the people who are calling them are people who I need to expand. You know, I want a mm-hmm. tax break. I mm-hmm. want this. But they're not talking to operators about their business day to day. And we started this conversation with me describing to you what the pandemic did to our organization. Mm-hmm. We were a brand new organization. So it was easier, admittedly, for us to change than it would be for others. But because we were brand new, we started being that last mile. Mm-hmm. So we were the people that actually went out and said, all right, we're going to do $1,500 for that particular store and $2,300 for that store. And this is the rationale. And this like is how that. we monitor it. And this is what we do. And that's what made us actually be in a good position to work closely with the larger funders mm-hmm. because we could we actually set up a system that was all about getting to that last mile yeah. and accounting for what that person did yeah. and talking to that person and documenting we created our own CRM or customer relationship management mm-hmm. tool to mm-hmm. do that so we could report back so that they could all say this is how that money was spent yeah. and i would just say that that is probably the most important thing that you could invest in today here in Kansas City. Stewardship is so very important. It's very valuable. Now, I think we really should um, ask you to come back and do a workshop um, (laughs) with a broader audience. And this is off the cuff, but really, you know, being ready so you don't have to get ready Mm. is what we what we are really need to be um, able to 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 hone our craft. in that. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. No, you said it. I mean, I agree, totally agree, because we kind of, we normally keep him to ourselves because we use all this information. But I definitely think we need to have some kind of workshop because there's small businesses, there's small developers that need the technical support of how do I get to this next point? How do I use these? How do I, first of all, how do I get the offer dollars? Mm-hmm. And then how do I use them? How do I show that clarity? That we have to show in order to get those dollars. And let it be multidisciplinary. So you mm-hmm. have, um, you know, policymakers and business mm-hmm. leaders and philanthropy and mm-hmm. small businesses and neighborhoods to really figure out, like, mm-hmm. is that a yes? Yes, it is. Okay. But I will say this. I actually would prefer to bring my team who runs our business growth Thanks services so. yes. because I think the thing that is meaningful is because we were forced to to, to change and, and our model, mm-hmm. um, that's we wouldn't have probably gotten there on our own. Mm-hmm. And then we had to basically create all these processes in order to validate what we were doing. Right. But the key was we had a partner in Cook County who saw the value of us talking directly to these small businesses, mm-hmm. and they allocated a million dollars in mm-hmm. 2020 for us to do that, that's yeah. right? That's so good. they allocated a half a million dollars last year, but they're back up now to a million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they see the benefit of what we're doing to connect to those individual entrepreneurs. Yeah. And truthfully, we have amazing stories that come from it, mm-hmm. right? You know, people who... We're going to go out of business that we were saved. People that were trying to figure out how to, you know, who do I sell my business to? People that were trying to figure out how do I grow my business. Mm -hmm. And now those people can attribute, in part, what's happened to them in a positive Mm -hmm. directly to government. And so I I would just say, when we come back, and I'm happy to do so Mm -hmm. with my team, Two would, days. We need two days. I would love two days. Two days. Yes, because we also need rate. that marketing prospectus. Yes. 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 We, we definitely will. need that. We definitely need that. That'll be available, well. by the way, I think after uh, 
April 21st. We make the final presentation to the Tampa Bay City Council on April 21st, yeah. and so you should be able to get it online. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We'll and we'll yeah. also want to record, uh, uh, at least uh, from an at audio standpoint, uh, using our fabulous sound engineer, uh, Royce uh, Diamond, <laughs> uh, who owns ROAM Studio. So, um, awesome. And with that... I think we should wrap things up. This has been a very exciting and Amazing. stimulating conversation. Yes, uh, so I certainly want to thank, of course, Councilwoman Robinson uh, for her time, uh, uh, Tammy Buckner, and the wonderful and fabulous Mr. Bo Kim. Uh, thank you, Ms. Thank Jordan. You. Thank you very thank you much. I'd like to thank our wonderful sound engineer, Royce Diamond, of the RAOM Sound and Video Recording Studio, 3rd District Councilwoman Melissa Robinson, Tammy Buckner of We Code KC, and of course our special guest, Mr. Bo Kemp, CEO of the Southland Development Authority in Chicago. We also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Stay tuned for more interviews surrounding community development in Kansas City's urban core.